Father, again, we thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Those who did lay aside every weight that would so have easily ensnared them and who ran with endurance the race that was set before them. And they finished well. Not perfect, but well. Father, we want to run well. We thank you, though, for the one who ran perfect, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who set the perfect example, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Thank you that his act of of obedience has been laid to our account that His death has been applied to us. Father, thank You that we stand in His righteousness and we are secure. Lord, we want to learn from You. We want to approach Your table with purity and holiness and obedience. And so we ask that You would prepare our heart for the time that we come before Your table. And Lord, as we study about one of these men in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, help us to learn things from him. He ran well. He finished well. Help us to learn the lessons for our own life. May it be more than just some things that we know. Lord, I pray that you would transform us through your word. Transform our thinking. Transform our motivations. Transform our actions so that we would truly be able to glorify You even in a greater way. Uh, Keep our hearts focused on the text. Help us not to wander in our thinking of what happened either this last week or what's going to happen this next week or even what's going to happen tonight. This is very important stuff. I just pray that You'd give us wisdom, convict our hearts in areas that need conviction, and please change us for Your honor and glory. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah, again, um, we're, we're looking at the man's life. Uh, next week we'll actually get into the text. But again, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah the man. He was a man of determination. In fact, one book was written on him and that was it. A man of determination. Be determined. We're doing this, again, this study, a, a biographical as it were, to see how does, uh, what does it look like for, uh, the, uh, for a man that God uses. Okay? The man that God uses. And again, he's, he's a wonderful example. We don't find any, that I find, any uh, particular sins that are actually identified in him. Kind of like Daniel, kind of like Joseph of the Old Testament. Uh, Some would say, well, he got angry. Well, he got angry over sin. You should get angry over sin. (laughs) I think that shows his character more than anything else. But he was a man of determination. He was a man that once God showed him something, he went forward. And again, we need to be men men and women of determination. Did you know, and this is really referring to other people of determination, not necessarily Christian. Did you know that Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor for lack of ideas. 
And that he also went bankrupt several times before he built Disneyland. Did you know that Babe Ruth set the record for the most home runs in baseball history? And at that time back then, but that on that same year, 1923, he also held the record for the most strikeouts. Did you know that in 1954, Jim Denny, the manager of the Grand Old Opera, fired Elvis Presley after one performance saying, You ain't going anywhere, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. <laughs> Did you know that it took Thomas Edison 2,000 experiments before he invented the right filament for the first light bulb? When a young reporter asked him what it felt like to fail so many times, Edison replied this way, quote, I never failed once. Inventing the light bulb just happened to be a 2,000-step process. I like that. I like that. By the way, that's kind of how it is in our Christian life. We, and then God brings us back and brings us back. Did you know that by the time Beethoven was 46 years old, he had become completely deaf and yet went on to compose his greatest works, including five symphonies during his deaf years? Wow. I still don't understand that one. And did you know that Jonas Salk, I believe it's Salk, The man who invented the vaccine for polio attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines before he came up with the one that worked. Someone asked uh, Jonas uh, how it felt to fail 200 times trying to come up with the vaccine for polio, and he replied this way, I never failed 200 times at anything in my life. My family taught me never to use that word. I simply found 200 ways not to make a vaccine for polio. (laughs) Yeah, these were men of determination. And again, as we look at uh, Nehemiah, I want you to kind of put that in the back of your mind because actually in the very end of the message, we're going to look at him again as the man of determination. He was a man of determination. He set his eyes as it were like a flint. He, when, he, when God told him to do something, he did it with his whole heart. Again, are we that type of person? Are we the type of person that perseveres, never quits, in the ministry for our God. Again, never quits getting into God's Word. Never quits uh, going before the Lord in prayer. Never giving up on God's people. Never giving up on God as far as what God has given to us as far as spiritual giftedness. We don't quit. Nehemiah never quit. And he was a leader. He was one of the greatest leaders of all time. In fact, other than Moses... And David, I mean, you've you got to get him right up there. Now, you might say, what is a leader? And again, we're going to be talking a lot about leadership in the next few weeks. But if you wanted to define the word, uh, define the word leader in one word, you could define it this way, influence. Really, a leader is a man or a woman of influence. Again, you lead someone to the measure you influence them. Well, we have to be careful. By the way, we have to be very careful as Christians. Do you see how important that word leadership and influence is, how they connect? And then you think about it in the church. 
It is no wonder Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 gave very clear qualifications for the leaders of the church, which are called the elders, right? The pastors. Why? Because leaders influence. <coughs> and you do, not, you do not want to have leaders in the church influencing ungodly in ungodly ways, right? But leadership is influence. We're influencers. That's what Nehemiah was. He was an influencer. He influenced the king. He influenced the people in Jerusalem. He even influenced his ungodly enemies. Again, not everyone who thinks they're a leader is a leader. As I was saying last week, and I couldn't remember the exact, but this is how it goes. He who thinks he is leading when no one is following is only taking a walk. And a lot of people take a walk, and they think they're leading, but really no one's following. But again, we want to be men and women of, of influence, to be leaders, to be godly leaders, to <coughs> be passing the baton to the next generation. By the way, what's so hard about that is we are faulty and frail ourselves. We are fellow strugglers, and we know that there are many, many minefields along the way, the path of life, and we can easily fall ourselves. And sometimes we fall in such a way that we lose the credibility, we lose the integrity, we lose the, even the ability to lead. So we have to be careful. Each one of us needs to be careful. No matter where you are at in the spectrum, you need to be careful with your life. Be very cautious. Because again, leaders are influencers and godly expe- uh, God expects His leaders to be godly. Now again, Nehemiah is a book of book for leaders. It's like a handbook. Uh, this book literally are the memoirs of a man. Again, his name is Nehemiah. He was prominent as a businessman. He was a prominent politician. <coughs> he lived in the ancient Middle East. And yet, so few people really study his book. Actually, I've been in the ministry for 20-some years and have not studied up to this point. I, I wish, actually, in some respects, I had studied it when I first got into the ministry and then was able to come back at this time. It, it would have solved some of my problems. But again, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. We'll see that more next week. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, later, he became the governor of Judah. Uh, in the second half of the 5th century B.C., actually he becomes governor twice. He becomes governor, stays there 12 years, and then comes back another 8 or 9 years later. Again, 5th century, that means we're talking about the 445 to 415 B.C. 400 years before Christ, that's the point. 400 years before Christ is when all this is happening. By the way, the book of Nehemiah was actually written down by Ezra the priest. It wasn't by Nehemiah, but, but these are his memoirs. And again, from this book, we're going to learn a lot of practical stuff, very relevant stuff. <coughs> I mean, you're going to learn how to relate to a touchy boss because he had to do that with the king. You're going to learn the balance between faith in God and personal planning because, you know, sometimes we get those mixed up. How does it work? Faith in God, but is there something I have to do? God's sovereignty, human responsibility. We're going to learn how to gather information and form a workable plan. Because some people have a lot of information, but they never get off the dime. Getting other people to follow you, that's another thing. And having passion to do it. What was it, Harry S. Truman, I think, I think it was him that used to say, um, referred to leaders as people who can get others 
to do what they don't want to do and make them like doing it. Now, as parents, don't you want to do that with our kids? <coughs> Come on, guys, let's go cut wood. Right. Right. <laughs> I need more of that. How to manage, uh, uh, handle dis- discouragement caused by difficult people in the process of accomplishing a project. That's something else we're going to learn. You know, you always got difficult people. By the way, his people wanted to kill him. But you always have difficult people. Uh, another, another lesson, how to motivate discouraged followers. Because by the ch- time of chapter 4, the, the people are getting discouraged. And he's going to have to uh, embolden them. We're also going to learn how to succeed where others have failed. Because they tried to uh, build that wall many times. And yet it wasn't until Nehemiah came along that it was successful. And to win without intimidation. Or what to do with hurtful potentially paralyzing, get this, criticism. Sometimes it's not the person throwing the rock, it's just somebody saying something. See, how do you deal with all these things? Well, all these things are found in the book. It's, it's really a, just a very, very practical, relevant book. But, these principles are not just dumped on us. This is what's great about Nehemiah. Rather, we see them lived out as Nehemiah accomplishes an incredible project Against unbelievable odds. I mean, you actually see the guy. It's not like a book where you just got, you know, uh, principle number one. <laughs> Be determined. I mean, you get to see the guy. You can almost like walk with him. I would hope by the end you'd actually say, man, he's a really, he, you know, he's a, like a friend. By the way, I would encourage you, if you haven't, you might want to uh, read uh, the book of Nehemiah in this next few weeks. You know, maybe just take a few verses a day, a chapter a day, whatever. But I would encourage you to read through it. Um, because again, you're going to familiarize yourself with the text. So, we want to get to know the guy. That's what's great about this book. <coughs> Yet, we don't want to just study Nehemiah just for principles of leadership. I want to give you something else. Or how did he build the wall? We need to see the man. Okay? In other words, what type of man was this leader that wielded such great influence over, a, over the king, over the people, over the nobles, over the people that owned stuff, like the guy that was ahead of the forest, over the, um, the enemies? You know, you're going to hopefully like walk in his shoes. Hopefully it will be like this. You walk in his shoes and you start saying, oh, I see how I can use that. All right? See, but before anything else today, I want you just to see the man. I want you to see how godly the man is. Because God uses godly people. It's not just about principle. See, you can be an influencer and be very ungodly. I mean, I was doing some research this last week, uh, yeah, a couple days ago on Hitler. Boy, talk about a guy that had influence. But so horrendous, right? Just horrendous. So we don't want to be just a leader. We want to be a leader that God uses. And you know, you, and I, and you, I could say just numerous leaders, even up to today, Ahmadinejad, or, or even the people in Washington that seek to lead us. A lot of power, very ungodly. But so we want to see him for who he really is, the the man of God. So we're only going to look at two different things. The, we're going to look at Nehemiah as the man of God. But before I even do that, I want to end with him. I want to just look at the project first. And I referenced it last week as far as the building of the wall, but I want to give you a, a bigger picture of how did Israel get into this predicament of having the walls broken down in the first place. Okay? So I want to give you the history. I want to, I want to look at the project first and then end with a little bit of review and looking at the man that leads us right into communion. 
So look at the project. Why did the wall need rebuilding in the first place? Well, let me go way back. Way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, Jewish history begins, Jewish history begins, with whom? Who is the guy that starts Jewish history? Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. At approximately, what, what uh, B.C., how many thousand years before Christ? How many? I just heard it. 2000 B.C. Okay? 2000 B.C., Genesis 12, God uh, goes to Abraham, promises many things, but the idea is, but the point is this, that's where the Jewish people begin. Later Israel took on world significance. About a thousand years later, uh, Israel takes on world significance uh, as a nation, the nation of Israel. And again, you find the, the great king, Saul, David, Solomon. So you go from Abraham, 2,000 years, 1,000 years later, uh, they're a nation, they're formed, they, uh, they're together. But then let's go even a uh, hundred years after that, more than a hundred years after, for, uh, more than, excuse me, not after that. In that hundred years with, with uh, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, you have it where Israel is the nation. Uh, they're at the pinnacle of their prosperity and power and the expanse. And, and under Solomon, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. By the time we get to Solomon's life, his compromises had brought God's judgment upon the nation. And so we go from Israel as a nation and powerful and prosperous and in 1 Kings, we find out this is the reason why. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my co- covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. You're not faithful. You're not going to have a kingdom. But for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Uh, can you imagine getting that? Revelation. <coughs> it's going to be destroyed, but it's not going to be under yours. It's going to happen to your son. And his son would be Rehoboam. By the way, if you notice, as I was reading, I will tear it out. I will give it to your servant. I will, do, I will not do it in your days. I will tear it out of your hand of your son. I will, I will, I will. This is what God says is going to happen. And it's exactly like he said, uh, as uh, Saul, or, uh, Solomon died, handed over to Rehoboam, it's split to Jeroboam Rehoboam. You have the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom, and, and Israel is forever split at that point, at least up to this point. Uh, Israel became a divided kingdom. Israel in the north had ten tribes, and it literally was called Israel. Uh, the two <coughs> southern tribes was called Judah. God judged Israel, we find, within about a hundred and some years. Uh, the Assyrians come from the north, come into Israel in 722 B.C., and they literally destroy the ten tribes. They take many of them captive, and some of them flee. Some of Israel, the ten tribes, flee to the south. But for all intents and purposes, Israel is the ten tribes there never exists again. Okay, They're still there. They're going to come back to the land, but I'm saying they never came back as a as um, part of the nation. So you have the ten tribes, they're gone, they're finished. The northern kingdom, excuse me, the northern kingdom ceased, but then the southern kingdom, the land of Judah, remained a Jewish nation for about another 150 years. About 300 years total. By the way, the northern kingdom were very ungodly kings. The southern kingdom, if you read Chronicles, you find out that some of them were godly kings. And because of their godliness, God allowed revival to happen periodically and, and they, they held on, as it were. 
But finally, in 586, after going through Babylon two other times, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar finally totally destroys uh, the southern part of the kingdom, Jerusalem. He invades Jerusalem. He destroys Judah. He takes the people captive. And that is what we call the Babylonian captivity. Uh, when the northern kingdom was destroyed, that isn't called anything. But the Babylonian captivity is when the, the southern last two tribes are destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And you see this. If you go to Second Chronicles verse chapter 36, uh, 36 Second Chronicles 36, um, you can, I'm going to read right down through uh, actually what happened. And again, Chronicles is written by Ezra. He gives a history of what happened after the fall of Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 18, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord. So uh, the vessels, the treasures, everything, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, and all these he brought to Babylon, he being Nebuchadnezzar. And they burned the house of God, that was the temple, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. You see what happened? Uh, by the way, that happened because Nebuchadnezzar had come to Jerusalem to, uh, to uh, conquer it. In 605, some things happened, but then they, but it, the Jews rose up again. He comes back in 597, a few years later. They rise up again. When he came in in, in 586, he would, that's it. Now, I want you to get that because next week when we hear that they allow Nehemiah, the king of Persia allows Nehemiah to go back to rebuild the wall, that was like a miracle. Because Jerusalem was always known as that troubled place, as it were. And people were always having rebellions and uprisings. And for a king of Persia to say, go back and rebuild, you know what? That's God. That is God. Because I want you to see the intensity when Nebuchadnezzar came the last time. It's like, we're never going to have this problem again. And he just, he laid waste to everything. He took everything he could take, all the gold from the temple, and then he took the walls. I mean, he had his soldiers take the walls. And they didn't just, just burn it. They literally dislodged them and threw them into the valleys, the two valleys on either side of, uh, of Jerusalem. It was like, it, this place is never going to stand again. So totally, or Jerusalem was totally leveled. The temple of God was totally destroyed and the wall lay in complete ruins. Look at verse 20. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him. So the children of Israel, the protected by God, are now slaves to a foreign land, kind of reminiscent of Egypt, right? Bound together, chained as slaves, they were sent to Babylon. Which again, depending on how you get to Babylon, whether you go up or straight, it's six, 800 miles. Hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Slaves to a foreigner. In fact, Psalms 137.4, don't turn it, you can write it down. 137.4 is actually written while the people were in Babylon. And it says this, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Can you just see the, how can we survive? Because Israel's in captivity. But God didn't forget by the way, there's an interesting study, we won't do today, but the same way that he said, I will destroy the, the kingdom the first time talking to Solomon, it's interesting to go to the book of Jeremiah and especially Ezekiel 
37, 36, 37, 38, chapters 36 through 38, where God is talking to Ezekiel saying this, these two words, I will. It's an interesting study to see when God is talking to the prophet and saying, I will. I destroyed them, but I'm bringing them back. I will do it. I'll do it for my name's sake. So God doesn't forget. He had a plan. Look at the very end of verse 20. First Chronicles 36, 20. Until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Again, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. His reign is passed on to his son Belshazzar. You find that when we studied in Daniel chapter 5. I wish I had a, I need to get a timeline. I, I told you that last week. But the, the kingdom of Babylon is destroyed in 539. 539 B.C., 539 years before Christ, thereabouts. And at that, in chapter 5, we find that Babylon is destroyed because the Persians come in through the gate, and Persia is now the world, uh, the world leader. Babylon goes off the scene, Persia comes up. And it's, it, it's at that time. See, the book of Nehemiah, when he's given the, um, uh, the right to go back to build the wall, is within a year of that. Okay, so, I mean, within a year of that time frame, what's happened? Uh, Babylon is no longer world power. Persia has, has defeated them. And within that year time frame, Artaxerxes gives the permission for Nehemiah to go back and build. It's all kind of happening. Look at verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath. To fulfill 70 years, that's the Babylonian captivity. And what is he saying? The mouth of Jeremiah. Well, if you go to Jeremiah 25, verses 1 to 11, basically God tells Jeremiah, listen, my people have not been faithful to keep the law. Part of the law was this, that every seventh year the land would lay uh, follow, I mean, uh, lay uh, dormant. You wouldn't plan anything. It was, a, it was a, a Sabbath for the land. But they figure from the time of Eli, the judges, till all these years, they never did that. They just kept, you know, uh, man wants to have more, so you just keep planning. Never let the land lay uh, dormant for a year. You're supposed to plan for six years, lay it dormant for a year. Plan six years. And God told Jer- uh, Jeremiah and, and Jeremiah 25, listen, because they didn't do that, they're gonna, it's going to be laid dormant. Now think about this. For 490 years, they didn't let it lay dormant. When they go into Babylonian captivity, it's for 70 years. 490 years, there should have been 70 periods of time to let that land lay dormant. And because they didn't do it, God actually took the people through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and brought them to a foreign land and said, you're going to stay here for 70 years until that land lays dormant for 70 times. See, God is the God of His Word. <laughs> and sometimes we think we get away with things. and No. So again, look at verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. I just told you something totally wrong. There was three returns. I don't know what I was thinking. There was three returns. Uh, to the land of Israel. There was three exoduses from uh, Persia back. And the first one was through Cyrus. He was the first one that, um, that made the proclamation that actually allowed Zerubbabel to go back. When, when I was telling you, uh, 539, it wasn't ne- uh, Nehemiah. That was uh, 100 years later. 
It was Cyrus. He decreed, but anyways, it's right here, that the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now again, was Cyrus a believer? No. Did he have a care and concern for the Jewish people? Apparently God had put that in his heart. By the way, does the Lord control the heart of man? Proverbs 3.21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes, right? So Cyrus sent a proclamation throughout the kingdom. Verse 23, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and, is, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in, Judea, in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let him go up. So... Um, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon and Persia, the people are allowed to go back in three ways. The first one is uh, under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Not Joshua of Joshua, you know, the book, but a different Joshua. They go back. They bring people back to Jerusalem. And then another few years pass. And, uh, I think it's about 80 years. And a second wave, Ezra brings another group back. And 13 years after that, Nehemiah goes back with the third wave. The first wave of people, Zerubbabel, they begin the temple. They started the wall but kept failing. Ezra goes back and they finish the temple, but the wall is still not up. See, the wall is... So the enemy can come in at any time. Nehemiah goes back, the temple's finished, but now Nehemiah goes back to the protection of the wall, of the city, of the people. By the way, in the middle... This is, what, this is an interesting fact. Esther, remember how Esther, uh, if I die, I die, actually happens between the first and second returns. In fact, let me say this. The king that deals with ne- uh, Nehemiah, you know, the King Xerxes who deals with ne- Nehemiah to let him go back, was actually his stepmother was Esther. Now think about that. So God gets rid of Vashti. Esther's there to the king. Uh, Ahasuerus, and then Ahasuerus dies, and his son is Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes is on the throne as the cupbearer to Nehemiah. And I bet you that Esther said a whole lot to his stepchild. He gives reason why he was so anxious to allow Nehemiah to build the wall to Jerusalem, that rebel city. See, God works, God works, God works. I spent a long time, that was about 15 minutes, but I want you to get the picture. It starts with Abraham. Because of disobedience, the, the kingdom is tore north and south, and Assyria takes the north, and, and, the, and, and Babylon comes in and destroys the southern, and they carry him off into exile, but God says, I'm going to bring you back. And after 70 years, they start going back. And the only thing they can first of all do is just build a temple. Because let's face it, if you go into a destroyed city, really, hey, let's worship God. And they build the temple, but it stalls. They build it, they finish it under Nehemiah or under Ezra, but now they're unprotected. And now Nehemiah comes back after about 100 years of exiles coming back because he's the third wave after about 100 years. And then says, let's build. Now, that's what he's going into, Okay. That's what he's going into. And now, let's just close for the last few moments of looking at the person. See, you had to get those thoughts. 
See, Nehemiah would have had the, he would have remembered the stories of Esther. When uh, when Haman tried to kill the Jews, uh, what was it, 40, 50 years previous, and and, and they were going to be wiped out, and he saw the hand of God rescue his people. He would have been, probably wasn't born yet, but he would have heard the stories of it. He would have heard the stories of Zerubbabel going back. And then 80 years later, Ezra going back to, to Jerusalem. And his heart probably ached. I, I, I've never seen Jerusalem. I want to help the people. All those things were going on in this man's life. Well, what type of man was he? Let me say the statement this way. Who you are is of far greater importance than what you do. And that's why I told you I told you about the project that he's going to be involved in. But I want to now end with the most important is who you are. By the way, that's how it is with you guys, right? With each one of us. Uh, in men's prayer a few weeks ago, uh, one of the guys was saying, you know what's interesting in America? When you talk to, you know, when you're, you're introduced to someone, what is one of the first questions you usually ask? And what do you do? What do you do? Really, that is so secondary. Who you are is of such greater importance than what you do. But because man looks on the outward, we have a tendency, what do you do? But let's think about who we are. Let's ask the question, am I like this? Are you like this man, Nehemiah? First of all, he's a man of prayer. You saw that last week. He over and over again, when, when he was confronted with the issue of the, the Jerusalem and its state in chapter 1, what does he do? He prays. Not only he prays, he prays for months before he approaches the king. And then the king asks him, what, what, do, what do you request? What does he do? He prays. We called it a telegraph prayer. But then he goes and he starts building the wall and the enemies, Sanbel and Tobiah, they come after him. You know what he does? Prays. Oh Lord, remember me. Or remember us. Eleven times, over and over again, you see a man who prays. But let's get up behind the scene. What's going on in his heart? If a man prays like that, what's going on in his heart? He has dependence on God. That's what it is. Question, are you a woman or a man who is really dependent on God? Do you go to God or do you just go to God as the last <laughs> hope? You know, you, 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 you did every other, you exhausted every other resource in your arsenal and now I guess I better pray. I trust it's not like that. Because really you see him as a man who just walks with God. In every situation, he, he lifts up before God his needs. Dependence. Second thing, we see a man of calling, purpose, vision. Verse, chapter 2, verse 12, I, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. You know, when you're praying and meditating and fellowshipping God, He puts things in your heart. It becomes solidified. This is, this is what I must do. By the way, and whatever that I must do is, has got to go along with His Word. It always lines up. I know what God's told me. I need to leave my wife. No. doesn't line up to the Scripture. I've had people come in into the office and with absolute assurance, this is what God told me. No, He didn't. Because it's not... This is, this is inerrant. But does God lead us? Yes, you better believe He does. Your own particular situation. This is what God wants you to do. He was a man of patience. (coughs) 
Because he didn't just blurt it out. Like I said, he took months. He was willing to take risks. He was a hard-working delegator. And we, that was stuff we looked at. But I will give you this thought. When it comes to risk and patience and purpose and vision and working hard, and I like how um, A.W. Tozer said it, serving is not convenient. So let me say it this way. Serving is inconvenient. Would you say that serving is inconvenient? Is serving God inconvenient? Yeah, I would say it's inconvenient. He writes this, What must our Lord think of us? If the accomplishment of His work depends upon the convenience of His people. (laughs) I almost have to laugh. Because you go anywhere in the world and they would say, You are out of your mind. Following Jesus is hard. But we want to make it convenient. The truth is that, he goes on, the truth is that every advance that we make for God and for His cause must be made at our inconvenience. If it does not, if, if it does not involve inconveniencing us, there is no cross in it. See, the cross means it's inconvenient. What is God asking you to do that's inconvenient? That's hard. That's difficult. That's a risk. A risk being that there might be something that you lose. The possibility of loss or injury. Injury. What is God asking you to do? What is God asking you to do right now that is very, very hard? By the way, it may not be hard. It may be just perceived as hard. By the way, it might be this. There's something in your life, a trial or a sin or a temptation, that would literally be taken care of if you would just make that hard choice. See, when we come before the Lord table, we're saying, Lord, I'm walking with you. And I'm walking with your people. And sometimes we struggle with sins because we're not willing to make the hard choice. We're not willing to lay aside every sin. We want it easy. We want to have our, well, as the world says, cake and eat it too, right? We want to have those options, those possibilities in our life. And some of those things keep stumping us because we're not willing to be radical. See, he was, a, he was a man who served God even in the midst of it being inconvenient. Another characteristic was he was a man of courage. Again, courage is not the absence of fear. It's just a disregard for it. The fear is there. But because they're righteous, there is, as Proverbs says, they're as bold as a lion. Sometimes we think, well, no, uh, I can't move until I have no more fear. No, no, it's, just the, it's not the absence of fear. It's just saying, Lord, you're more important than my fear. I'm moving forward. So we can't be timid. We can't be timid. In fact, uh, we don't have time, but if you look at Joshua's life, remember Joshua, uh, Moses, my servant, has died. And now the, <clears throat> the baton is being passed to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. You know what's interesting? Five times. He is told to be strong and very courageous. Five times. First of all, in Deuteronomy 31, Moses, before he dies, tells Joshua, his uh, apprentice, as it were, the guy that's going to lead, be strong and very courageous. Chapter 1 of Joshua, God Himself tells him in verses 5, 6, and 9, I believe it, be strong and very courageous. Then Joshua apparently passes that on to the people. And in the end of chapter 1, the very end, the last verse, I believe it is, 
The people tell Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Now listen, if someone has to be told something five times, I, I, I'm starting to think, you know what? You know, I, I think he had some fear in his heart. He was stepping into some very, very big shoes. Moses. But Joshua is told by Moses, by the people, excuse me, by Moses, by God and the people, be strong and very courageous. I learned from that again. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's the disregard for it. He might be calling you to do some very hard things. He was calling Nehemiah, what? He had to go up against opposition. We'll see this in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5, where he had to deal with his own countrymen, the Jewish brethren, over usury. He, he had to then in chapter 6, again, more opposition. Opposition from within, opposition from without. And he kept on track because he was courageous. He didn't have the fear of man in his life. Tozer said this. I'll just read one more quote of him. I cannot believe in the spirituality of any Christian man who keeps an eye open for the approval of others, whoever that might be. The man after God's own heart must be dead to the opinion of his friends as well as his enemies. He must be willing, be as willing to cross or anger important persons as those who are obscure ones. He must be ready to rebuke his superior as quickly as those who may not, who may be beneath him on the ecclesiastical ladder. To reprove one man in order to gain the approval of another is no evidence of moral courage. It is done in the world all the time. He goes on and he says, we must totally, wholly be lost in Him. The frantic effort to please men will come to an end then. If once we, our eyes are set on Him, then we're not frantic to please everyone else. He closes, the circle of persons we struggle to please will be narrowed to one. Then we will know true freedom, but not a moment before. Not a moment before. This whole thing of, you know, do we have courage? And I think, you know, sometimes we don't have courage. You know why? Because our eyes are set on too many people. Too many people. In fact, as we come before the table, do you have courage, courage to do what God wants? Courage, even though there's fear, you're willing to say, I'm going to be obedient. You know what else we find out about Nehemiah? He was very, very generous. We find in chapter 5, that while all the other former governors were getting the, what they call the governor's allowance, he was literally feeding 150 plus people, plus guests, plus people coming through Jerusalem, 150 a day on his own tab. <laughs> and we don't have time to look at that. But on his own bill, he was the one that was supporting the entire... He didn't take a dime from the people. They were struggling. Because again, when we... Serve the Lord, it should be sacrificial. And then finally, we find a man of determination. He governs well. He leaves for six or eight years. When he comes back, there's problems. Chapter 13, you know what he goes right back to? Solving the problem because he's faithful. If you look at his total life, I think it's like uh, 30-some years he was dealing with Jerusalem. But he was determined from start to finish to do what's right. We lose steam, don't we? Oh, we start out really fast and we're really expending energy for Jesus. And then sometimes it's easy to start just slowing down. 
and not having the passion. You see him with chapter 13. He had the passion to the very end. The story Bill Bright tells about this guy, he had always wanted to go on a cruise ship. And so he saved his money and saved his money and saved his money and finally was able to buy a ticket on the cruise ship. But it was just enough money. And he thought to himself, he didn't have enough to buy the food on the cruise ship. So he decided to just take some cheese and crackers with him. Now picture this. He stays in his cabin for the first few days. And while he's there, he sees going by him all these stewards with all this food. You know, lobster and prime rib and all kinds of fruit. And I mean, he is growing hungrier and hungrier because his, his crackers and cheese not only are running out, but they're becoming stale. And he finally like opens the door like on the third day and, and like tells the guy, you know, come here. And he says this, please help me. I'll go to work. I'll scrub the deck. I'll do anything to get something to eat. My cheese and crackers are, are stale. They're, they're almost gone. And the guy turns and says, well, don't you know that your food comes with your ticket? Don't you know that the food comes with the ticket? By the way, some of us are cheese and crackers Christians. It says in Ephesians that we have all spiritual blessings given to us in Christ. We are told in 1 Peter that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us. Colossians, we are complete in Him. And sometimes we just stick with our cheese and crackers because that's what the world gives us. And I would encourage you, as we leave today, okay, remember the fullness of Nehemiah's life. That's because he feasted on the Lord. That's because he went to the Word. That's because he was a man of prayer. He walked with God. You know what? Christ has given us all things. Don't be a cheese and cracker Christian. Depend on His Spirit. Depend on His Word. He'll stretch you. But you know what happens when you're stretched? You depend more on Him. And you start seeing the fruit of the Spirit developed in your life. It's like a cruise ship. Once we got saved, everything's there. Just, you just gotta, you gotta take it. But sometimes we go back into our room and just start eating our cheese and crackers. Just trying to survive. And yet the bounties of heaven, all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have everything at your disposal. Everything God wants to give. Well, He's going to give you more in heaven. But everything that you need for a life of, of, of godliness is right here and now. If you would but reach out and ask. Right? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, thank You for these reminders. Thank You that we are secure in Christ. Thank You that we can have a relationship with You, that we can walk with You, that we can fellowship with You. Lord, may the commitments we made even right now to want to walk in holiness continue throughout this day, throughout this week and month. Lord, help us to develop, help us to develop a, uh, a relationship in such a way that we are completely dependent on your spirit working through us. Father, thank you even for pain. Thank you even for the times of suffering and the times of trials because they drive us back to you. Lord, we know that everything does work together for good to those who truly love you because we know that we are loved by you. Just give us wisdom in these areas so that we might walk effectively before you. In Christ's name, amen.